You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello and welcome to episode 140 of the Christian Feminist Podcast on Aldous Huxley's 1932 novel, Brave New World. I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, and with me today are regular panelists Blake Miller and Sarah Thomas. Hey, Blake and Sarah. Hey there. Hey. Let's introduce ourselves for anybody new to the program or just for a refresher for our typical listeners. Sarah, you go first. All right, everybody. I'm Sarah Thomas. I uh, have a Ph.D. in English literature from uh, Florida State University. For the last 10 years, I have been teaching high school English. I'm currently teaching at a uh, at a Catholic school in the uh, metropolitan Atlanta area and where my uh, husband and I live with our dog, Archie. Uh, who is sitting next to me right now. So he'll be joining in on our conversation at some point, I'm sure. Uh, Yeah, and I'm happy to be here and be talking about the novel this evening. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, And hi to Archie, one of my very favorite dogs. (laughs) Uh, Blake, tell us about yourself. All right. Um, Let's see. I have a Master's of Divinity from Abilene Christian University, done a lot of different ministries uh, before landing into hospital chaplaincy. Uh, I'm currently in Greenville, South Carolina, working for a cancer institute with my wife, Ellen, and our dog, Sniper. Thanks so much. Uh, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. I am one of the founding members of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I live with my husband, Michael, and sadly no pets at the moment uh, in a suburb of Atlanta where I work for an area startup that helps get funding to female entrepreneurs. Uh, Like Sarah, I have a Ph.D. in English from Florida State University. So I already said we're talking about Huxley's Brave New World uh, for this episode, but uh, I thought it would be useful to do some background before we dive into the novel itself. Um, Blake, tell us about your history with this novel. (laughs) Um, Let's see. I'll start by saying my favorite book of all time is 1984 by George Orwell. I read that, I think, junior or senior year of high school, and as much as the old adage, you know, a book that changed my life could be true, I think it's true for that one. It really just captivated me and made me believe that the written word was extremely powerful, um, extremely vital, and something I wanted to be immersed in and part of for the rest of my life. So when I was in college getting uh, my bachelor's degree in English education, I was reading Orwell, just everything uh, he wrote, basically, for for my own 
amusement and pleasure. And I also read in college uh, Brave New World. So to be blunt, I saw um, Huxley's book as the older but less interesting cousin of 1984. And according to my own interpretation, a less realistic, less possible dystopian future. Uh, but I still you know, appreciate it for the the themes and and the warning within it, uh, maybe not in terms of what might actually happen on a global or political scale, uh, but what it might speak to in terms of the human heart and the human experience. OK, so uh, so we might have a fight on our hands is what you're <laughs> telling me. All right. Uh, Sarah, tell us about your experience with the novel. I actually first came to uh, Brave New World when I took on a co uh, took on co-teaching a class that uh, was just titled Humanities um, at my first secondary ed teaching job. I was uh, co-teaching the class with uh, the director of fine arts for the upper school there, and when I first came into the course, uh, both Brave New World and 1984 were on the reading list for this group of, um, at the time, uh, honors level accelerated uh, 10th graders. And one of the things that apparently had been happening is that um, because the discussions in other units had been so engaging uh, for the last several, for the prior several years, uh, they had started running out of time as far as covering both works at the end of the year. So what we ended up deciding to do, because Brave New World is a little bit shorter and because time was working against us, uh, we dropped 1984 in favor of keeping Brave New World in the curriculum. And so I actually didn't, uh, I didn't come to it until I was already uh, working as a secondary ed teacher. And so my experience with the novel has been uh, not only as a reader of the book, but always with an eye towards how to teach it, how to walk young adults through the novel in ways that are productive and um, and that do justice to Huxley's uh, Huxley's project in his own terms, but also how that piece can continue to speak to us in the early 20th or 21st century. Okay, so I'm, I'm sure we will talk um, a lot about your pedagogical experiences, too. Um, I actually came to the book even later than you. Um, I read this novel for the first time a few months ago. I've wanted to read it for a very long time. Um, I started college early in the middle of my high school experience and kind of entered my English major courses fairly quickly. Uh, so because of that, there are a lot of things that everyone has read that I've missed out on and had to catch up uh, by myself as an adult. This novel is one of those. But I've wanted to read it for a long time, primarily because of uh, Neil Postman, who I've always really, really loved. And in the foreword to Amusing Ourselves to Death, um, which is a fantastic book that everyone should read, um, he essentially says that Brave New World is um, is kind of the, the dystopia we in 21st century America observe, uh, deserve. And he 
explicitly says that it is more suitable to our time than 1984. So we'll we'll come back to that point. Uh, I'm just going to uh, read a real quick paragraph from Postman that uh, made me want to dive into the novel. What Orwell feared, Postman says, were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much information that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with some equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumble puppy. Uh, in 1984, Huxley said, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. Uh, so I'd like to hear you guys' response to that. Um, Blake, I know that you already said um, that you really love 1984, uh, and you're going to talk about that and some other dystopias in a second. But can you briefly uh, respond to Postman's assertion? What do you think about that? If I had only one sentence to say about it, I would say let's not uh, assuage ourselves or even comfort ourselves with the idea that only one of these two nightmare scenarios can come true or is in the process of coming true. You know, uh, we definitely do seem to be amusing ourselves out of control, if not to death. Uh, but let's not forget about the advances of government oversight and control. You know, I'm thinking about the Patriot Act in uh, America and the idea uh, in, you know, England that in London, everybody is constantly surveilled by CCTVs and it's just not possible to be to yourself there all the way up to uh, Trump getting to put three different justices on the Supreme Court in four years, which means uh, we arguably have a conservative supermajority that uh, if we do things the way we've been doing them, at least is going to probably stick around for decades. So I think there are many ways in which Huxley's nightmare scenario and Orwell's are both coming true and <laughs> different groups are arguably fighting to see uh, how they can do that. Also, you know, just on a personal or a more visceral reaction, I would say, I think any argument about Huxley's world coming true needs to remember that a lot of it has to do with people being selectively bred and brainwashed from, you know, birth or a very early age on. So the idea of, oh, no, we would just choose not to read books is a little, I think, simplistic considering in the, in the, uh, in the book, people are taught not to like books because they are electrocuted when they come close to one when they're babies. So, uh, but I, I think that, uh, it's a good way of saying that there's more than one of these kind of totalitarianisms to worry about. And I will agree that Orwell said there would be a totalitarianism from above where it seems like Huxley says it would come more from within. And I think that that's uh, an important distinction to understand. Okay, so why not both dystopian hellscapes? <laughs> All right, that's that's not a comforting thought, but I, I 
I think it makes a lot of sense. And um, I, I like what you said about um, the, the bioethics, eugenics angle, too. I know we're going to um, get deeper into that as well. Um, Sarah, do you have a, a response to uh, Postman's view of Huxley? What do you think? I My first reaction was to be inclined to agree that um, – that admittedly having uh, not – I have not read 1984, but um, but in looking at my, you know, at my own cultural milieu and the idea of, you know, the idea of amusing ourselves to death, I, I can be persuaded by Postman that perhaps Huxley may have been on to something. But I also – I also see Blake's point. Um, and I think I might build on that by by mentioning, although I don't know that we need to go too far down the rabbit hole, that Orwell and Huxley knew each other and exchanged letters with each other. And um, the edition of Brave New World that I teach to my students, it's the Harper Perennial edition, includes a letter from Huxley to Orwell uh, that was written in October of 1949. and the end of the letter, as we were, uh, as we began this discussion, I came across and thought it might be worth reading if you'll uh, forgive me uh, just a few minutes. Um, in other words, he concludes his letter, I feel that the nightmare of 1984 is destined to modulate into the nightmare of a world having more resemblance to that which I imagined in Brave New World. The change will be brought about as a result of a felt need for increased efficiency. Meanwhile, of course, there may be a large-scale biological and atomic war in which we shall have nightmares of other and scarcely imaginable kinds. Thank you once again for the book. Uh, Orwell had sent Huxley a copy of 1984, and this is Huxley's letter in response. Um, so I, I think it's interesting that, um, you know, that in 1949, Huxley uh, – seems to suggest to Orwell himself that maybe Orwell's version was more likely to look like where humanity would end up than Brave New World itself. Um, but I tend to think of, um, I think the phrase that came up a little bit earlier was, why not both? <laughs> um, and I think there might be something to that, uh, that, again, if they if they did know each other and were exchanging ideas, that perhaps there are aspects of both of them that we could bring to bear on our own moment. That's fascinating. Uh, thanks for sharing that letter with us. Um, I, I love the, the complexity there. Yeah. I think it's I, also just worth uh, noting that, Orwell, you know, wrote just after the Second World War of the 20th century, and I think that the idea of a constant war, which we see in 1984, makes a lot more sense if you've just seen, you know, another 10 million people die for the second time uh, in 40 years, and the idea of World War III seems inevitable as well. Sure. I mean, we now when we talk about foreign policy, um, we we use the phrase permanent war, um, which I believe is is from Orwell, isn't it? I, th I think he's he's the one who coins that phrase, though we don't use it exactly the way he did. Right. 
there's definitely the the idea in 1984 that war is always happening because it's easier to keep political control over your own nation if you're if you're fighting another. Yeah. Uh, sure. Um, so why don't you keep going, uh, Blake, and and tell us a little bit about um, how this novel compares to other dystopias? Sure. All right. Um, so obviously we've been talking about 1984, which was published in 1949. Orwell's last book, considered uh, by many, including myself, as his magnum opus. Huge cultural milestone, um, not just in terms of the overall uh, plot and, and themes of it, but also in the the characters or the, the words that he used. If you've heard of the uh, word like thought crime or double thing, you can thank Orwell's 1984 for that. The famous Apple commercial of 1984 aped the, the style um, and the idea of an, oppress- uh, an oppressive totalitarianism. Even in uh, Britain, up until very recently, there was a panel show, uh, one of their, their many, you know, funny people panel shows called Room 101, where people argued for what they hated the most, and it would be sent to the, the room from Orwell's novel to be tortured. <laughs> um, so obviously a huge cultural milestone there. A lot of people don't know about a pretty powerful and popular dystopia that predates both of these books. Um, it was called We, and I'm going to butcher this name probably because this is a Russian writer named Eugenie Zamyatin. His name starts with a Y, but I'm thinking that's probably called Eugenie or something. Um, he wrote it in the early 20s. He couldn't publish it in Russia because a dystopia published, you know, in Russia, and that was probably not going to fly in there in their, uh, you know, new revolution. Uh, it was first published in the U.S. in 1924, and it predicts this world where people are only known by their numbers. The city is made of glass so that people can be under mass surveillance, and dreams are considered a mental illness. In fact, it's very similar to Brave New World in depicting a sort of false utopia where the protagonist is happy where he is until he sees these glimpses of an alternative lifestyle. Um, so there's quasi-feral humans outside of the city and a machine that reprograms your brain so that you're incapable of free thought. In fact, Orwell uh, suggested that Brave New World had to have been cribbed from this book, We, but Huxley said he hadn't heard of it before he wrote his own. I'll let you decide. <laughs> uh, Fahrenheit 451 is another popular one written by Ray Bradbury. Um, a man named Guy Montag is a fire uh, fireman, but he works to burn books and other cultural artifacts rather than save them uh, in order to keep people from thinking up seditious thoughts. He meets a very free-spirited woman, and that starts him on the path of recognizing that there might be more to life. Um, obviously, a, a huge uh, book in American literature and probably something we read in middle school or high school, all of us. Uh, there's an old story where uh, Ray Bradbury actually went into a college lecture about his book where the college professor said that it was all about um, censorship. And Ray Bad- Bradbury uh, responded that, no, it was about people uh, – being dumbed down by mass media and loving TV so much they never wanted to read a book again. And allegedly the college professor told Bradbury, whoever he was, he didn't understand the book at all. I don't know how apocryphal that is or not. Um, there have been I've, a lot I've more. I've heard that story before, um, yeah. and I, I was always um, 
terrified <laughs> that something like that would happen to me when I was teaching. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's your standard issue kind of death of the author uh, classic intro, I think you could say. There have been plenty of uh, dystopias between then and now, but just to sort of move forward, one one of them that came to my mind when I was thinking of just ones I could easily put my hand on was The Running Man, written by Stephen King back when he was writing under the pseudonym of Richard Bachman. So in that one, a man named Ben Richards lives with his wife and his child in this corporate hellscape called Co-op City. And the child gets sick, so he signs up for a game show where he is uh, hunted for sport, uh, I think, for like a month. And if he can survive, then he gets a huge cash prize, which honestly is pretty prescient these days, you might say. I think it's yes. predated. How is that different than like GoFundMe and, and people going on game shows so that they can pay for their cancer diagnosis? Yeah, that's exactly. Wow. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people are familiar with the, the book uh, The Giver by Lois Lowry. I think that was released in 1993. Um, a boy lives in this utopian society, uh, and he is selected to be the one who receives the memories of the past before everybody dampened their emotions in order to stop the global violence that was consuming them. And he actually learns that the world he's living in is pretty dystopian in its own right, and he uh, tries to escape. So... What I see often in these various things are either what I would call uh, covert dystopias or overt dystopias. So when they're overt, you've got a book like 1984 where the protagonist you know, knows that he's in a dystopia, basically, is unhappy with things but just feels incapable of getting out of it or tries to rise up against it and fails. Then you've got these covert dystopias like uh, Brave New World or uh, Fahrenheit 451 where – it seems like people are able to get along fine uh, until they meet someone who has a much freer outlook on things. And this entices them into a better world or even in many people's idea, a worse world in order to have human freedom back. And that's where the, the cracks start to form. And, of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that in the last 20 or so years, uh, young adult literature has been suffused with dystopias of all kinds. From. Yeah, I think it's only allowed to be those now. <laughs> yeah, that that's, might be. that's the only kind of YA novel you're allowed to write now. Yeah, from The Hunger Games to Divergent and The Maze Runner and everything in between. A part of me wants to make some kind of high-handed thing that it's after 9-11, you know, young ad adults feel completely unmoored and they, you know, are able to think about the loss of control and uh, loss of freedom or something. But I also kind of think that, you know, that's just how that's just high school cranked up to 11. And also writing a dystopia is, is pretty easy from a setting point of view, I would argue. So that might be it, too. Yeah, a lot of um, a lot of great points there. Um, so seems like a, a good uh, place to to let Sarah jump in since we're talking about uh, high school and, and teenagers and, and how to sort of process this novel and, and think about how dystopias work. Um, Sarah, you mentioned that you teach this novel uh, a lot. What kind of table setting do you do for your students when you teach it? And what background issues do you think are important to learn about and think about when we think about this novel? The way that I have tended to provide background 
for this novel is uh, because it does usually come at the end of the year. It's something that we've been working towards um, gradually uh, over the course of multiple semesters, even if my students don't necessarily like realize that's what we're doing until I point it out to them. <laughs> um, so we spend um, we spend uh, time actually talking about the modernists and really beginning with um, really beginning with the study of the long 18th century. Re, uh, we raise with our students the question of, you know, what is the nature of progress? Uh, what is humanity progressing towards? And is that progress always a good thing? Um, we start that discussion with, uh, with, for example, um, often Frankenstein. So talking about uh, scientific inquiry, the, the ramifications of, um, you know, the, the ramifications of, of, um, unbridled ambition, but also, you know, of trying to do things that haven't been done before because they haven't been done before. Um, and then we continue that idea forward, you know, through the Romantics into the Victorians, into questions, you know, the sort of continuing questions of an increasingly industrialized uh, world and what the ramifications of those are for the individual, um, with a particular focus on what what is the relationship of the individual to society or what are the responsibilities of the individual to society? And one of the things that I particularly like to point out to students um, as we get into 20th century literature is uh, that I see as one of the, the major through lines in 20th century literature is a response to the trauma of World War One, and we've talked a little bit about the the World Wars um, earlier this evening, but that if the idea that particularly after World War One, if all of the systems that had been developed for understanding our world, uh, whether that was religion or politics or uh, governmental structures or the relationship of the individual to society, if all of that got so much of humanity to the trenches in France for four years, then do those systems work anymore? And if they don't, what needs to take its place? And so I spend some time highlighting um, those ideas for the students, trying to trying to help them understand what modernism itself, literary modernism at least, um, and to some extent um, uh, the visual arts and modernity, right, and modernism, what are they trying to accomplish, and then take a look at how Huxley might be responding to those same kinds of uncertainties or traumas, and um, what he might be uh, satirizing as a proposed solution. So among other things, when it comes to Huxley specifically, um, we spend a little bit of time talking about uh, Huxley's uh, encounter with um, encounter with the assembly line, with Henry Ford's assembly line, and the um, potential for uh, the things like the assembly line to dehumanize people, um, that, uh, his other concerns about rapid advancements in technology, his disillusionment with Britain's government in the 30s, and the specter of the, um, if you want to call it the specter, 
um, of the Bolshevik Revolution and the rise of communism, um, again, in the immediate aftermath of World War One, and then as it continues to develop. Um, we also end up, we also provide a number of uh, frameworks for our students. Well, we point out to the students that when it comes to the names, a lot of the names that characters are given are drawn from historical figures, um, many of them, um, many of them, though not all of them, affiliated with, um, with uh, communism, whether that's uh, Lenin or Marx or Trotsky or Benito. Um, there are also, um, we also explain uh, the references to Thomas Malthus um, in the Malthusian belts that um, women wear, um, pointing out to them that Malthus was the scientist who had predicted that the human population would eventually outrun the food supply, um, and then um, making clear that references to Watson um, are to the American behavioral psychologist. Um, so some of those things that the students might not be as familiar with so that they understand why these characters are named who and what they are and where um, where Huxley is making those sort of specific gestures to recent historical events as he's writing in um, and to some extent current events as he's writing in 1932 and then also trying to frame it in terms of, um, you know, part of a continued critique of the ideal, if you will, of progress. Um, and so once we've done that, we get into the text itself, and um, I can talk a little bit more about um, what I've done more recently um, in my current teaching position um, when we get to that point, if you'd like. Yeah, sure. Um but before we do, I just wanted to ask um, the two of you, I, and maybe my experience is, is different because I, I really just read this book um, quite recently, and so I've, I've been thinking a lot about um, the moment that we're currently in and vaccine skepticism and what does progress really mean in terms of industry and medicine and, um, you know, do these tech companies really care about their employees and unemployment and layoffs? And, and all of these questions are sort of um, intertwining in my mind. And I was, uh, because of that, because that was the background I was reading the novel in, so many of um, their linguistic, the New Londoners' linguistic tics, um, like the naming conventions you mentioned, uh, Sarah, Lenina and Bernard Marx and Trotsky and all of those, um, their use of Ford instead of Lord as oaths, um, I think struck me as a, a little less odd than they would have in a, a context that wasn't so concerned with um, figuring out our, our own relationship to science. Um, were, were there any things about New London when you guys were reading the book that you um, – weren't as surprised by or, or that resonated with you in terms of the way our society works? Hmm. 
Just to hear you talk about the names and and how they're so kind of enculturated differently with Ford over Lord, it, it it just brings to my mind this idea of how many names of you know people I know or work with come from the Bible, and it's kind of interesting to think about. We don't really think about uh, that because it's so suffused in and around us. Uh, it's it's interesting to kind of think about what would what would have to change, how much would have to change, what, and not only in terms of culture, but just personal priorities, uh, to have that change on such a level as, as what we see in terms of Ford and Lenina and the Benito and the same things. One of the things that I perhaps found less surprising than I expected to, um, was the, uh, was the degree of distraction, like the, the willingness, um, like the the willingness to be distracted by whether it was sports or, um, or you know, for children, uh, erotic play or going to the feelies, the sort of um, the I'm looking for a word here and it's it's not coming to mind, but the yeah the willingness to engage in sort of sensory kind of overload mm. um kind of like willingly and as a some sort of distraction or as a sort of anesthetic um from what might otherwise make people uncomfortable that seemed entirely plausible to me yeah um even the first time i read the novel which was well, four or five years ago at this point yeah yeah i have quite a few marginalia about um, like Netflix and self care and and all of these concepts ways we um, ways we are supposedly good to ourselves. I know I, I definitely wrote treat yourself uh, <laughs> several times uh, while I was reading, so I, I think that's uh, that was true in in my experience too. And he kind of uh, predicted the sexual revolution by about thirty-five, forty years, didn't he? So. Yeah. So let's let's talk about that. Um, I I want to jump into that specifically. Um, Sarah, you mentioned earlier that a lot of why this novel works as a novel is because it um, deconstructs a lot of the organizing social systems that that modernism is um, questioning and working through one of these social organizing principles that it deals with um, really deeply is uh, biology and and sexual reproduction um, as as someone who teaches in a Catholic high school um, and and talks to teenagers a lot about um, that religious perspective and how it informs their lives. Can you walk us through some of the things this novel has to say about sexuality and, and reproduction and how we should think about the relationship between those two things? Yeah. So one of the things that, um, that comes up most frequently um, when, uh, when I teach this novel is, is actually um, uh communications that that the school receives from uh from parents who are um who are concerned about the way sex is portrayed in this book and one of the things that um and one of one of the things that we try to point out um 
or that we try to highlight and, and we do conscientiously is um, to point out that uh, what Huxley is doing is engaging in satire. So he's using the um, the portrayal of, of sex to actually um, understand the uh, a sort of different ordering of, of not different ordering, um, but that the the way that um, society might uh, structure and approach to sexuality might actually be a source of stability. But before I get too far into that, one of the things that the novel does, and I keep coming back to the to the very first page of the book, um, when the new group of I think medical students is visiting the Central London Hatchery and Conditioning Center, um, the World State's motto appears in the you know in the first four lines, and it's community, identity, stability. And one of the ways that uh, that New London and the world state seems to want to achieve stability is through the removal of desire. So through the the closing the gap between the moment of realizing a want for something and the fulfillment of that want. Um, but what ends up happening is that uh, as a result, um, Sex and sexuality becomes, again, one of these um, becomes a a way to achieve stability through the gratification of desire rather than or, you know, gratification of a want or seemingly a need, um, but is seen as unsettling as far as um, its potential reproductive capacity. So that reproduction becomes an assembly line. So reproduction is a process that is done um, artificially and is done, um, yeah, in an assembly line fashion through a process that's referred to as decanting and that uh, embryos are manipulated um, through this process um, in order to uh, in order to render them fit for a particular role in society, um, that question gets that issue regarding um, regarding reproduction. Um, in my experience, seems to get fewer questions um, than the ones about the uh, like the sensory uh, pleasurable experience of. Um, of sexuality as described in events like the feelies as described in orgy porgy or in the erotic play so that it's not a big deal. It's something that everybody does, but it is not part of its procreative function um, or it That's doesn't so serve a procreative That's function. That's so interesting to me because I think it, it shows how we, even we as, as believers and religious people, tend to kind of internalize stereotypes about our own religion because I mean, certainly um, many, many Catholics and many, many Protestants believe uh, that God gave us sexual desire. And we, of course, believe that there are certain ways and certain contexts to use that desire and certain contexts that we shouldn't use it um, but I, I think it's so interesting that you get more parental objection to 
um, the feelies and, and the sort of more pornographic uh, parts of the novel than you do um, something like the decanting, which is um, is going against what so many Catholics believe about the purpose of, of reproduction and, and how God created sex to be. It's uh, fascinating to, to think why we as a people might object to one more than the other, even though both um, tend to, to go against uh, church teachings of, of what sexuality is for and, and why. Yeah, I, a thought just occurred to me. I, does it have, without us going too far down this rabbit hole, does it have something to do with the visual? Yes. I think so, yeah. Uh, right, that, that because it's, you know, even, even within the hatchery, right, the decanting process is something that's not really shown off to people. Mm-hmm. It's something that, you know, is part of a sort of medical tour, and there's some distance from it. Um, yeah. you know, as, as opposed to the, the tactile or the visual nature of the other component. Um, although kind- Victoria, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Blake. <laughs> well, it kind of reminds me of, uh, 1984 Orwell's book where the new language that the main character is helping create new speak is designed, um, to prop up the totalitarian party by literally making, uh, unsavory thoughts literally unthinkable so in the appendix to 1984 um orwell explains that you could say something like big brother is unbad is ungood uh but you would not be able to use newspeak as a language to define what you meant by that so you would literally be almost physically incapable of bad mouthing the party um and that's it kind of seems to me to sort of mirror this idea of when we're talking about decanting instead of pregnancy and birth and, and sex in a procreative sense at all, it almost feels like the fight is lost. Go home. There's no reason to fight anymore. You know, the war is over. You, you might as well put your, your weapon down. And, and that's kind of what it seems like to me versus, uh, you know, erotic play being something that still has sort of a visceral connection to what we know and understand sex and sexuality as. Um, the the act of it or the the erogenous and the pleasure part of it is still there, but the the reproductive part has been completely outsourced and it's not even um, a fight capable of being waged anymore. Yeah, I think you have a good point, both of you, about the the role of the visual here. Um, I will say I tried to watch a little bit of the new uh, television series based on the novel. It's on the streaming service Peacock, uh, and I didn't make it all the way through the first episode um, because it it was just so pornographic. Like there's there's no way around it, and I um, I I'm typically you know not someone who's very prudish about uh, depiction of, of sex scenes, but I, it was just, it was pornography and that is all it was. And I couldn't watch it. Um, but I, I was also in the, in reading the novel, very disturbed by um, the issues of, of eugenics and, and the way embodiment and bodies were talked about. Um, I was not, prepared for this to be as much of a novel about embodiment and physicality as it was. Um, That was something that was difficult um, for me to handle, not just 
some of the decanting um, portions, but also um, entirely the, the treatment of Linda and, and her body, specifically her maternal body, was, um, was really hard and, and not something I was prepared for. Hmm. That kind of sounds like, go ahead, Sarah. Oh, I was going to say one, one of the things that, that I keep coming back to, and I'm still working through as a teacher, as I, as I work through this novel with students is how much of this is done, you know, what's done in this novel is done in the name of stability and I keep coming back to the question. One of the questions that, that we actually used as, as the, the essential question when I taught this work within that humanities course was what does it mean to be human? And if the establishment, um, you know, or the, the attempt to sustain stability comes at the expense of what makes us human and as, as Victoria's articulated so, you know, so well, um, you know, within so many of, of our religious traditions, sexuality is part of what makes us human, then at, at what point do we become something else? You know, how much do we sacrifice before we become post-human or something other than human? And and that's one of the things that, that continues, like I said, to, to strike me about this aspect of the novel. Or, or what you were saying earlier about the the gap between desire and fulfillment of desire. Um, without that gap, so much beauty is lost, right? So, so much of the the tension and the the richness of humanity is is not there anymore. If there's just immediate gratification, um, so much of of the conversations that. Uh, Bernard and his friend have about um, writing and thinking and and philosophy. Uh, so much of that richness is is gone if uh, our desires are are met immediately, which of course is is the point. We don't have soma in our uh, current world, but we do have TV shows with lots of nudity in them. <laughs> so I think we're on our way, right, Victoria? Um. Sure, we can we can talk about what uh, what soma would be because I I have um, I, I think that's that's complicated too. Um, I know I mentioned Netflix. Um, if I haven't mentioned social media, uh, that that's worth a mention too. Um, but in in terms of numbing, um, I something that was difficult for me thinking through the novel is I am someone who takes mood stabilizing drugs prescribed to me by a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, I am also someone who deals with insomnia and takes sleeping pills. And I was sort of trying to think through those things and say like, is that bad? I, I don't think it's bad. I think it, you know, helps me uh, function. I think that dependence on those things are maybe bad. Um, but I don't know. Is is there something to arguments that say these kinds of drugs, you know, alter our our natural responses to things, and so we should think about how we use them? I don't know. What What do you think? It's tough to to think about the fact that these drugs kind of 
burst onto the market. In the beginning was was your Prozac and your lithium, and then so much, so many more came out, and they quickly became the most prescribed category of prescription drugs. And it, it as a uh, person in the medical field, in a very tangential way, of course, and who grew up uh, with a nurse. Uh, who became a nurse practitioner for a mother, and my sister was a nurse for about 10 or 15 years, hearing them talk about psychiatrists and how, you know, all they do all day is listen to you long enough until they know which pill to give you and then, you know, throw it down your throat as soon as they can and move on to the next person. I It's and I, I don't want to be disrespectful to either the people who are going on, you know, who are, are on these mood stabilizers or. I was on SSRIs for about seven or eight years of my own life in my teens and twenties. It's, it's tough to kind of thread the needle between I do know the good they can do, but you do worry whether it's, it's sort of a shortcut or a cop out kind of, um, technique. And if some people at least might be being overprescribed them, uh, what do we do about it? How, how do we, how do we live with the fact that we know that they, they do do good and that some people seem to thrive on them and seem to need them. But at the same time, even the people who are taking them say, I wish I didn't have to. Right. But Soma is more than that, right? Maybe I'm interpreting this incorrectly, but Soma isn't just an antidepressant and it isn't just uh, a sleeping pill, though I believe we now have a sleeping pill that if it's not called Soma, it's called something very close to that. Uh, so someone didn't think that out. But isn't it also kind of ecstasy, right? Like it's it's about positivity, too, and, and about a sense of, like, not needing to do anything. So I, I think it's to, to pigeonhole it as just SSRIs or antidepressants or sleeping pills is to not completely understand what the new Londoners are using it for. Right. Well, then, you know, we can we can pull in the idea of the opioid epidemic in in America and the idea that, you know, some people are using them for pain relief means and other people uh, are using them as a sort of recreational drug. And it kind of seems like we are kind of coming towards getting closer to this idea of a soma type drug from several different directions and you know the question is how do we how do we keep it far enough away from from that false uh i guess i would say false panacea um it's (laughs) um well there is there actually was a drug called soma that i believe was on the market um, and it's a, uh, it's, um, it's a muscle relaxer, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was the name uh, of it? You said it actually was called, it actually was called Soma. Um, oh, okay. it's a muscle, yeah. yeah and it, it is a muscle relaxer and, and, um, I don't know very much about, um, about Huxley's own familiarity with that particular drug itself. Um, but it it is one the other in in a 21st century context i also find it a, at least a little bit amusing that the drug soma has the same name as the lingerie company to sort of bring us back around to human sexuality 
Um, yeah, that's uh, that's funny but, too. I, but it is a, a I saw an ad for them uh, on my social media the other day and thought, I wonder if they did that on purpose. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, well, we do know that soma is the Greek word for body, so they might so be coming at it from a different place. I lost my place, guys. Where are we? Um, we do we want to talk more about sex before we move on? I think we should at, at least talk about the visit to the feelies, that we, we shouldn't leave this section without talking about that. Sounds good. Yeah, well, I was, uh, let's see, um, John's visit to the feelies with Lenina, or? That's what I was thinking about, yeah. In my edition, it looks like it's on page 167. What chapter do you think that is? Uh, I think it's chapter 10. Okay. Or, sorry, chapter 11. Okay. We must have the same edition of the, the book. Sarah, mine starts on page 168, I think. Okay. Um, yeah, the bottom of 167, three weeks in a helicopter and all super singing, synthetic, talking, colored, stereoscopic, feely with synchronized scent organ accompaniment. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we should we should talk about what what the feelies are. How are they different from movies, for example? Uh, so the. So they're a they're a visceral experience. And so it's it's not just that you you go to watch something on a screen and hear it. You sit in a chair with um, with knobs in the arms and um, you get um, again, you get visceral reactions. So if um if something happens on screen, like characters kiss each other and you're holding on to the knobs in this chair, you might feel a sensation on your lips that that would, you know, that would sort of approximate what was happening on the screen. Um, and and so it is. Yeah, it's a visceral experience. It's sort of an all-encompassing experience, but it goes beyond something like virtual reality because, again, the the tactile and the olfactory, it's sort of an overwhelming engagement of all of the senses. And um, when John the Savage is – who is sometimes called John and sometimes called the Savage, and maybe that's worth discussing at a later point – when when Lenina takes uh, the Savage or John to the Feelies, um, he uh, on page one sixty nine, I think it says, um, he was obscurely terrified um, by Lenina's reaction, right? Um, and he is, I think seemingly baffled and horrified by the experience itself. He he's revolted by yeah. it. Um and what the thing that happens in the film that revolts him is it's this kind of base um King Kong esque uh exploitation. Right. Uh like a 
yeah, I, I also wrote black exploitation um, in right. the margins too. Um, this dark man has a sexual experience with a woman. Um, King Kong is sort of you, you feel King Kong references too, um, and John calls it horrible. Lenina says she thinks it was lovely. Um, he calls it base and ignoble, and she. Because it's so um, literally inculcated in her, she thinks that it's nice and normal, but there's, because he has outside experiences being raised on this savage, uh, quote-unquote savage reservation, um, and he doesn't, he isn't completely born into New London culture, um, he finds the film distasteful. Um, Sarah, you mentioned earlier that this is a scene that a lot of um, parents object to because of its pornographic uh, elements. Do you think there's anything else going on that makes the scene revolting, or is, is it just the, the sex stuff that we are uh, disturbed by? Because it, it, it is revolting. I, I had a physical reaction um, that was pretty close to, to John's reaction just reading about um, the film. Yeah, it's... You know, I'm... From, from the perspective of those who raise concerns, I'm not sure if it goes beyond um, the, the seemingly, you know, the, the more obvious pornography what i find so heartbreaking isn't the right word about the, for this exchange um but but maybe that is what's going on the the sort of awareness like john's john's abrupt realization of this sort of disconnect between himself and and Lenina and that sort of that sort of confusion there is is something that I think um, I think we're encouraged by this passage to to take John's position. I don't I don't know. Do y'all agree with me on that one? But I feel I feel like if we're intended to sympathize with anybody, it, we're asked to sympathize with John here. Um, oh, definitely, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that's true. I mean, I, I do. I feel bad for Lenina as well, but I feel bad for her for the reason that you mentioned, because it's so um, I, I get sort of secondhand embarrassment and frustration at the communication gap between them because they can't. It's kind of impossible for them to understand each other uh, because they are. They have completely different frames of reference. They have completely different cultural standards, and you just you know it's impossible for them to to meet in the middle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I refreshed my memory of this book with a commentary uh, online, and one of the things that I don't think I would have thought up myself was that it kind of the the feely itself works on a very ironic level, you know. John is revolted because of just sort of the base, uh, you know, celebration of, of sex, the way it's it's happening. Um, they kind of uh, 
the audience in the book dislikes that there's so much monogamy in the feely, uh, which which might even kind of double back around and be like, that's almost uh, a, a fetish or something for them. Like they're allured by monogamy because it's it's breaking the rules that they have for their culture, which is to to be as non monogamous as possible. And, uh, you know, people who read Huxley's book when it first came out would have probably been uh offended or disgusted by the fact that a black man and a white blonde woman were having sex. So it's it's really interesting that this is working on so many different levels um, to try and, like you said, kind of show the disconnect between John and Lenina and uh, explain, you know, how these people have been raised to believe such different things that they it can't they can't really possibly make a connection because of their assumptions because of their very different ideas of of morality and and good behavior yeah that's that's true um so one of the things that i wanted to talk about that struck me um the most about this book uh, since you're talking about frames of reference and, and cultural conditioning, um, a lot of John's character is shaped by his relationship to literature, uh, most specifically Shakespeare. Um, as probably most of our listeners know, the title of the novel Brave New World is a reference to Shakespeare's The Tempest. Um, Miranda, the sort of ingenue character in that play, uh, upon seeing human beings, she's been raised on a essentially a deserted island, um, and she sees uh, a human man her age for the first time and says, oh, brave new world that has such people in it. Um, John utters the same phrase when he arrives in New London for the first time. So there's a lot of... um, a lot of ways in which this is kind of a, a book about books and ha- what literature does for people. Um, John, one of the ways we know that he is separated from Lenina communicatively is because he uses Shakespeare to process New London and his feelings about it. And a lot of people around him, um, because, of course, they've never read Shakespeare don't know what to do with that, don't understand the references that he makes like uh, we people reading the book do. And what I find super interesting about John's Shakespeare references is the way that they evolve um, over the course of the novel. So at first I said he's Miranda, Um, he speaks the Brave New World line, and both of them are very naive characters. Um, Miranda, when she says the line, does not understand that the people she sees are, um, to use John's word, base and manipulative, and they're, you know, not this sort of miraculous sight the way she thinks they are. Um, John is sort of in a, uh, a similar position to her at the beginning um, of his arrival in New London. And his relationship to Shakespeare and what he quotes changes um, a lot after that. In the scene after the feelies um, that we just mentioned, Lenina um, tries to have sex with him, starts taking her clothes off, and he quotes um, Lord Capulet and Hamlet in quick succession, um, both characters who disprove of female sexualities and sexual forwardness. So first he's an ingenue, and then he's um, 
depending on your interpretation of Hamlet, a, and a middle-aged uh, man. And we have lots of Othello stuff in the feelies. Um, we mentioned, you know, a black man and a white woman. John himself notes that uh, it's a, a kind of crude Othello appropriation. Um, and not to spoil anyone, though we've had lots of spoilers already, so I guess to spoil someone, um, John ends the novel as a kind of hybrid of Othello and Caliban because he he decides to be a savage on purpose. He's living in the woods, and uh, all of these reporters and uh, people who are trying to objectify him uh, as a, a kind of noble savage annoy him and, and harass him to the point that he decides he can never be at peace and he commits suicide. So you have Caliban and Othello both together here. Um, I find this progression so interesting in a book that is about um, all the humanity-shaping things we've already mentioned and kind of desire and thought and genius and how do we construct societies um, because this seems to say that uh, reading is, is a thing that makes us human, too. Um, what do you guys think about that? <laughs> am, I, am I reading too much into it? Do I just love this plot because I was trained as a Shakespearean, or is there, is there something going on here? I think that, any, I think that Huxley knew uh, having a character carry around a big, big pile of Shakespeare plays was kind of inviting a reading like that. Chapter 16 in the novel, I think, brings a lot of this discussion to the fore. And um, I, uh, Victoria, I hadn't noticed that particular progression of, um, of, of John's character uh, with his Shakespeare references until you mentioned it to me a, a couple of months ago. Um, until I but, sent you a series of frantic text messages that was like, <laughs> he's Othello, he's Caliban. Oh my goodness, what's going on? Yeah, I got really excited. Uh, which, uh, you know, which, uh, which I shared uh, with my husband and we had a lot of fun with that. Um, so, so thank you for sending me those. Um, but, um, but one of the things that I find fascinating is that Mustafa Mond in chapter 16, or no, maybe it's Helmholtz. I'm sorry, it's Helmholtz. Um, but in in the conversation that he has with Mustafa Mond and with Helmholtz, they talk about, um, specifically come back to Othello and, um, oh, this is the controller responding to Helmholtz saying, you know, why, why not, right? Uh, the world's, uh, you know, it couldn't possibly be like Othello. Um, and the controller says, because our world is not the same as Othello's world. Uh, you can't make slivers without steel and you can't make tragedies without social instability. <laughs> and the world is stable now. So when you create uh, you know, so in in this dystopia where one of the goals is stability, again, you lose one of those things that we've talked about earlier uh, in this episode that, um, you know, you lose one of the things that that makes great art. Um, 
And the Savage, right at the bottom of page 220 in my edition, the Savage was silent for a while. All the same, he insisted obstinately, Othello's good. Othello's better than those feelies. Of course it is, the controller agreed, but that's the price we have to pay for stability. You've got to choose between happiness and what people used to call high art. We've sacrificed the the high art. Wow. Um. Yeah. I guess if if there's no um if there's no striving you, you don't need tragedy. Yeah. That's the part that almost rings the most hollow to me in in this book. You know, I somebody might disagree with me. I hate to bring up 1984 every time I get I get a chance, but <laughs> in 1984 the bad guys to to be really reductive have convinced themselves that their way is the best way that they have nothing to regret or nothing to mourn. And so this idea that uh Mond um or Heimholtz would say, you know, there are things we're missing. There are things we would have liked to keep, but we know that we can't for the sake of the greater good. Um I have to, maybe maybe it's because this this world they're living in is kind of new to them, but it would seem to me that within a couple of generations, uh, they would lose the ability to reason in that way or to to compare in that way, and they would eventually see uh, or believe at least that their idea was the best one, that their method of doing these things um, was the right one. And I wonder if that's either you know a chink in the armor of uh of the society itself or if that's something Huxley overlooked or maybe planted on purpose well i think you've you've got to have in these dystopias you've got to have a questioner right like winston in 1984 is a questioner mm-hmm. um and bernard um is is that way in this book um different than John, who has an outside frame of reference. But I think you're probably right about the generational aspect that um, that uh, Helmholtz knows that the people who come after him are going to um, forget the way things were before. That's why John is, is such a destabilizing influence. That's also why something like uh, – Hypnopedia exists in New London, right? It's why they start the kids so early so that they can, um, it's the only thing that they know. Right. Um, all right. So I, I know we're going pretty, pretty long here um, <laughs> so that we don't take absolutely forever. I want to transition into our last and, and maybe for this show, most important topic, um, the New Londoners and their relationship to religion, uh, one of the things that they are conditioned against, one of the things that Hypnopedia and uh, and the Feelies and all the things that we've been talking about um, work against is the idea of Judeo-Christian religion. Um, we already mentioned the way their language is altered uh, to change these things, um, that the Oath Lord becomes the Oath Ford, um, Charing Cross Station becomes Charing Tea Station. They, they chop off the top of the cross. Um, what what are those short uh, shorthand for? What have they actually exchanged? Um, what's recognizable to us as religion for? And how how are we um, as believers to to deal with those changes? It's it's difficult to uh, to sort of see 
a sense of them replacing one thing specifically with another. You know, there is the 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 movement from Lord to Ford and the the way that they speak about Henry Ford as uh, an almost messianic figure. You know, the the usher in of a new age of man. But I would say, you, you know, it, it doesn't ring quite as as similarly as the idea of him being a new god. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with the fact that people have kind of turned inward into themselves and, and self-pleasure is so important in this new society. Um, you know, because in Christianity, of course, suffering is not required per se, but definitely part and parcel of the Christian experience. It's, it's something that is kind of inevitable um, and and something that can be subsumed within our understanding of who God is and the way that we interact with God and receive and give uh, with God. Um, but there isn't really as much of a category for that in this, in New London. And so I think that that's kind of what stops it from being uh, a complete new religion kind of thing. And I guess it has a lot to do with... Uh, or, or a lot of similarity, rather, with the kind of do-it-yourself spirituality that we have seen maybe in the last 40 years and, of course, is popping up more and more all the time of people not only saying things like, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, but in, you know, uh, public theologians or, uh, you know, church figures brazenly saying, here's what Orthodox Christianity has traditionally taught, and here's what I disagree with about it, and here's why I reject it, that sort of thing. Um, so it's it's kind of difficult to talk about replacement and more of a sort of muddying and a, a loss of that central figure and central kind of um, place of finding oneself. Yeah, I, I like the point you're making about... Um pain and, and suffering and sacrifice, um, which I, I think ties into some of the earlier things we said about embodiment, too. Um, you know, with, without uh, Christ's pain and, and physical incarnation and sacrifice, um, you, you get rid of so much of, of the grace and, and holiness that makes our religion possible. Uh, so that's a, that's a good point. But I, let's talk about the solidarity service to the, um, the religious service that, uh, that we sort of go to with some of the protagonists of the novel. How did that service strike you guys? Honestly, the first time I read the book, it was the most troubling part of the book for me. Um, because it does seem on, on so many levels to clearly be trying to echo the celebration of, uh, of the Eucharist and at least, at least from my frame of reference, right, the, the Catholic celebration of the Mass, um, and, and it feels a little, on the one hand, it feels a little bit heavy handed at times because 12 individuals get together for a sing, you know, for any given solidarity service. So there are 12 and, um, it's in chapter five, part two of chapter five, which in my edition begins on page 80. Um, 
And there are lots of references with 12 of them ready to be made one, waiting to come together to be fused, to lose their 12 separate identities in a larger being. And there is a passing around of a cup um, that has strawberry ice cream soma um, was pa- that gets passed around, and uh, they all partake of the same cup. Um, and there is a ritual there, but what they say is, I drink to my annihilation. Um, oh, so I, I can't. I just can't. Like, I, when I read that, I had to get up and go into the bathroom because I thought I was going to throw up. Like, I, I was physically just disgusted by it. I had such a strong bodily reaction. And everything you're saying about the Eucharist, I I think, is true. But as someone who – have I taken – I think I've taken the Eucharist three times since I got confirmed because as as soon as I got confirmed, we had to stop – I guess before I got confirmed, we had to stop um, going to services in person. So that has been something that I've I've felt really deprived of, and I, I had to wait so long to take the Eucharist, and then just reading this novel and seeing that um, I know it was a purposeful mockery, but like complete mockery of something that is so sacred and important to me that I have missed, physically missed, with the deepest fibers of my being it's been such a like a spiritual struggle for me i i was so so moved by it but moved in such a negatively affected way yeah it's really hard to read yeah it's if if this is you know if this is a a a sacrifice and yeah there there's this sort of understanding that that the 12 are trying to become one but they're becoming one by annihilating their individuality and and then it it the the service culminates in an orgy (laughs) so if yeah like if the if the act of communion becomes one that is focused entirely on on sensory pleasure and not on, ultimately not on sacrifice. Um, then yeah, it's it's one of the parts of the book that I find that I find most troubling every time I read it. And I'm not articulating myself very eloquently. <laughs> no, I mean I, I wasn't either. It's, <laughs> it's okay. I even the sensory part, like I've I've said before on on this show and also on the Christian Humanist podcast, that one of the things that attracts me very deeply to Catholic theology is the embodied nature of the sacraments. So I'm. It's not like some stereotype where religion is against embodiment. It's that they have taken this kind of holy embodiment of the sacrament and the Eucharist and the physical experience of, of taking it in a body of believers and quite literally perverted it so much that it is it, only the, the barest uh, parts of it are, are recognizable. And yeah, it's, it's literally <laughs> disgusting. I can't hear that without kind of a part of my brain going, okay. And, and which, churches have I been in or which church experiences have I read about or theologians have I read who are doing that here and now, you know, how, how is the church 
the the global church or the you know the the contemporary church that I'm a part of doing the exact same thing. That's the uh, the I guess you could say the Orwellian Christian in me, um, or even you know sort of the radical Christian. Uh, I'm thinking of kind of Bonhoeffer's ideas about radical theology and and more more contemporary people like Peter Rollins who who say that it's it's impossible not to to get this wrong on some level whenever we try and do this i I kind of i was raised southern baptist and the the joke we like to make is you know we take communion every year whether we need to or not um and it was never really talked about i was never given an explanation or uh, of of why we did it but did it so seldomly but the the one that i kind of formulated was this is how we avoid falling into the trap of thinking the the bread and the cup are what saves us or what cleanses us or anything like that. And and it, it, doing that would take our eyes off Jesus. Um, and it's it's interesting to to read this and to be reminded of, of this scene in the book and think about how far you can really go with with that ability to miss the point. Um, and. and I drink to my annihilation is an interesting thing to say if it's going to end with an orgy, which is generally thought of as like the ultimate like self-pleasuring, like craven, selfish thing to do. Right. It's 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 a lot. It's a lot to to kind of contend with and to to ask yourself what Huxley was trying to say and, and what might he say um, to us who who are revolted by it. Yeah, it's it's funny talking about thinking through kind of the the theology of of communion. Um, another thing that I thought of, other than you know, once I like centered myself and and stopped thinking I was maybe going to vomit, um, I was thinking of youth group trips where um, we had conversations that were like, well, if we don't have grape juice, is grape soda okay? Or yeah. like. These sort of these questions that you ask, and now, like now, as as someone who believes in the doctrine of transubstantiation, I have a completely different uh, series of thoughts about it. But I mean, there's there's a little bit of of that in this too. That, as you said, how how far can you go? Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I I think we've probably. Uh, <laughs> probably talked for long enough uh thanks for thanks for humoring us listeners i hope you got uh something out of this discussion of the novel so we will leave you uh, as we always do with uh our third segment passing on where we recommend uh things we think you should read watch or listen to uh blake what recommendation do you have for us uh, probably won't be surprised. I'm going to say if you haven't read 1984 by George Orwell, uh, you're missing out. It's a gr- it's a wonderful, lovely, provocative, compelling book. I highly recommend it. Uh, I would also recommend the book We by again, I, I probably am screwing this up. Yevgeny Zamyatin um, uh, that uh, predates both of those novels and, like I said, has a lot uh, to lot to compare to Brave New World and a really interesting thought of what a dystopia looks like, especially when it comes out of uh, the Soviet revolution of the 20s. So those would be my two uh, recommendations at this point.
Thanks, Blake. Uh, Sarah, what about you? Uh, so this week, I uh, my recommendation is to check out Humani Vitae, um, which is uh, translated means of human life. It was an encyclical, a letter written by Pope Paul VI um, in 1968, and it's one of the pieces that um, that my uh, that my colleagues and I have used to provide some context for um, for understanding uh, a Catholic Christian perspective on human life and on providing a framework for how Huxley might be um, might be uh, working with that notion and how you know how we can work through Huxley's satire from uh, from that positioning and, and understand what Huxley is ultimately commenting on. So Humane Vitae, Pope Paul VI. Uh, one day I will uh, make it all the way through Humane Vitae. I have not done it yet. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, so I'm going to go kind of hardcore academic on this recommendation. I don't often do that on this show, um, but as I said earlier, uh, I am by training a Shakespearean, and I, I got to geek out a little about um, the Shakespeare references in this novel, so it got me thinking about uh, my very favorite scholar of Shakespeare and appropriation, um, that is ha how we think about interpretation of Shakespeare. So I'm going to recommend a book chapter by him. Uh, his name is Doug Lanier, uh, and the chapter is called Shakespearean Rhizomatics, Adaptation, Ethics, and Value. Uh, it's in a anthology called Shakespeare, The Ethics of Appropriation, uh, which is really all about um, what what we say about Shakespeare says about us as a culture. What does this interpretation mean? Um, he's a wonderful scholar and thinker in addition to just being a very nice person. Uh, so I, I would recommend that if you're at all interested in um, interpretations of Shakespeare and how uh, how we interpret classic literary texts and what those things say about us. So thanks, everyone for listening to this episode of the Christian Feminist Podcast. Uh, if you have thoughts about this or any other episode, we want to hear from you. Please drop us a line at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also talk to us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle at CH Radio Network and check out show notes from this and any other episode you like at the Christian Humanist blog. That's christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a proud member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Blake Miller and Sarah Thomas, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Tune in again in two weeks when we'll discuss the Netflix series The Queen's Gambit. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.